James chapter 3, verses, starting at verse 13. <clears throat> Who is a wise man and endowed with knowledge among you? Let him show out of the good conversation of his let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, it's sensual, it's devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, and then peaceful, it's gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. You can be seated. None of us can live very well without wisdom. And none of us wants to be known as a person who is without wisdom. To be without wisdom is to be considered foolish or um, stupid or in some way or another lacking. None of us wants that. James addresses this subject and this thought talking to the readers and the church at that time and introduces them instructs them to how they can find wisdom and how they can live well, utilizing wisdom that God gives them. Now James makes it just as clear as could be that wisdom comes from God. True wisdom comes from above. In James chapter 1 verse 5, we've noticed this uh, previous sermon. In James chapter 1 verse 5, it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. I appreciate that God does not make any of us feel foolish for asking for wisdom. And perhaps especially as we think of being at the beginning of a new year and the threshold of um, all that's unknown ahead of us. My prayer is that God would give me and all of us wisdom. And we need to ask him because he says that he will give it to us. He will give it liberally. He doesn't make us feel foolish for asking for wisdom. And then also we notice here in the uh, text here before us here in James chapter 3, 13 to 18, how that James puts wisdom and knowledge together. Notice in verse 13, wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is moral insight and skill in the practical issues of life. It means that we do life well based on what God has given us. Understanding, on the other hand, refers more to intellectual perception. Um, more of a um, scientific acumen or where we have, we have accumulated knowledge about a specific issue and therefore we know about the issue. Wisdom is deeper. Wisdom and knowledge are not necessarily the same thing. Now, a wise person is knowledgeable, but a knowledgeable person is not always wise. You can build a house with knowledge or by using knowledge, but it takes wisdom to build a home. Knowledge is able to build 
a Titanic, but wisdom avoids the icebergs. The church that James, the churches, the people, the Christians that James was writing to were experiencing conflict. And we've already noticed in our study up to this point how that it seems to be that that seems to be the case, and in fact, I believe was the case. They were people like you and I who find ourselves at difficult spots in our relationships. And I appreciate that James addresses that by ascribing to God's wisdom in relation to that. In verse 14, if any of you have bitter envying and strife in your heart, the Greek clause that is used there indicates that it was something that was current. It was not a hypothetical situation. Some translations use the word since instead of the word if in our King James Version. Since you are going through difficult times, since you are dealing with envy and strife, my feeling is that James was not addressing a hypothetical situation here that might arise sometime in the future, but rather a real situation that already existed. In the context here of this teaching, he begins chapter 3 by warning us that not many of us should be teachers. Not many of us should pursue teaching or being prominent because we receive a stricter scrutiny, he says. And he broadens that teaching by telling teachers and everyone about a problem that we all wrestle with, and that is the evil of our tongues, the incredible power for our words to be harmful to people. <clears throat> and in our last sermon, we noticed how that the, the text or the Bible tells us how that the use of our tongues actually is a mirror. It is, a reflect it is reflective of what is going on in our hearts, of what is actually in our, in our hearts. Out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. And those were words of Jesus to the disciples. The condition of our heart is revealed by our words. And this passage turns now, I think, just a little bit and takes a shift and talks just a little bit about how that condition, the condition of our hearts is defined or set. Or you could say the lack thereof. In the text before us here in James, James presents sort of a, a, a rather dramatic contrast between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Now, just to clarify, earthly wisdom is not actually wisdom at all. It is often or usually projected to be such by the people who have it in their hearts, by the people who project these kinds of teachings and these thoughts. They would project it to be wisdom. But James kind of cuts through the fluff and he, while he is calling it wisdom, he qualifies it as earthly wisdom. And we'll look at that in a minute. The descriptive words 
and the outcomes that are talked about here in the text are, at least in my opinion, closely connected with relational type issues. And perhaps that's a place where it is especially liable, especially likely to show up, is in our relationships. So I've entitled the sermon Wisdom from Above, but perhaps a subtitle to this sermon would be something like Wisdom for Relationships. So James contrasts true worldly or true wisdom with worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom inevitably leads to conflict. Here's sort of how I have uh, uh, summarized a few of these. And uh, in James chapter 3 verses 13 to 18, I've uh, summarized it or outlined the sermon for our purpose today uh, like this. And I'll show this screen um, some more. We all desire harmonious relationships. We want that in our church. We want harmonious relationships in our homes and in all of our lives. And James follows up this teaching on the, on the tongue and our words by calling for all of us to behave or to conduct ourselves in a way that does not lean on worldly wisdom, but instead ascribes to godly wisdom. Far too many of us, however, in spite of our desire to live harmoniously, Christian churches and homes today are sadly marked with frequent conflict. And being Christians, you know how we are. We tend to, to um, put a spiritual face on our side of, of the discussion. It's easy for us to resort to projecting our view and the way we see it as spiritual and focus on the other person's being unspiritual. We make it look as if we're the ones that are defending the truth. We're the ones that are standing on principle. And conversely, the other person is not where he or she ought to be. Well, there is certainly a place and a time for defending truth. I know that you know that. But there is a right and a wrong way to contend for truth. One of the great defenders of the, of the truth, Paul, writes these words in 2 Timothy. Actually, 2 Timothy, I was impressed or amazed at how Paul addresses this very subject. In First and Second Timothy, he teaches Timothy about some of these things and us. But here's what he said, at least it's outstanding to me. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, I'm reading out of the NIV, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed 
in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they, they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Notice that he did not say, as many of us today would believe, that we should never ever get into any kind of disputes with anyone. There should never be any kind of discussion about things of, in relation to doctrine or anything such. But he did say that we should, we should uh, when we discuss or when we get into discussions, that we should not be quarrelsome. Pretty big difference. And in our disputes and in our discussions, we should be kind, respectful. Not only willing to listen, but able to teach, able to convince people, gainsayers. Notice how he says here that opponents need to be gently instructed. And it, he, he appeals to a degree of compassion that we, all of us need to have and feel and, and hopes and giving opportunity for a person to, to come to a greater knowledge, to come to their senses, like the NIV says. <clears throat> and in that same way, James also kind of sets the, the, um, the question here in verse 13, where he breaks into this section and he asks a simple question. A rather simple question, I think. Who is wise and understanding? Now, it's amazing to me how many times in James he asks questions. I think there are 20 times in this short little book that a question is asked. Ten times previous to this and nine times following. This is about as close to the center of the, of the list of questions. And that, in fact, that would be a great way to study the book of James, is to study the questions and find, uh, yeah, to study it in that way. It's easy for us to claim wisdom. It's easy for us to, to uh, say that we are wise or to think of ourselves as wise. But James says, show me your wisdom by your life. And that is in keeping with the theme of the rest of the book. James is not particularly impressed with professions of wisdom as much as he is, I want to see wisdom by how you live. That takes time. And we do that by, by demonstrating that over a, 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 a wide period of time, generally. Good decisions that are stacked on top of other good decisions. And we can see a person's life and decide whether or not they're wise much better than by their profession of being wisdom, of being wise. So James, in his no-nonsense style, asks a simple question, and by that he kind of springboards into his teaching for the, the rest of us. Let me show you, or show me by your good behavior, by your good conduct, that you're wise. And do it in the gentleness of wisdom. I think those, some of those words there in verse 13, the meekness of wisdom, are rather fascinating. Now gentleness is often or frequently translated meekness in the Bible. In our King James Version, it's, many times it's the same original word. Gentleness and meekness go together. It's one of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is also one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the obvious signs of a person being 
spirit-filled is that he is a gentle person. That Greek word does not necessarily suggest a mild, weak person who has no backbone or stands for nothing or has no boundaries. That's not what the word implies at all. Moses, for example, was the meekest man on earth described by God and others as being meek. But yet he was a very strong leader. Jesus described himself as meek. And yet he powerfully confronted the hypocrisy in that day, especially among the religious leaders. And so neither gentleness nor meekness really communicates accurately the true meaning of the Greek word. The Greek meaning has the idea that it is strength under control. Meekness means that a person has power under control. When you describe a person as meek, you're not talking or describing them necessarily as being mild or having no backbone or having no um, understanding of boundaries and that sort of thing. But he talks about the idea of power being under control. The word picture there would be like a horse or a ship, which James has already done in, in, in chapter 3, where he talks about a great ship or a horse, a, a large, powerful horse, for the purpose of our illustration, that's being controlled by the bit in his mouth, or the ship by the small rudder that guides him. <clears throat> Now, James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. James was a teacher, a writer that was clearly familiar with the teachings of the Old Testament. And specifically, the kind of wisdom that the book of Proverbs talks about is exhortation and teaching for us to seek skills that build an attractive life to God. For example... Proverbs chapter 2, and again, there are many passages in the Proverbs that talk about this, and I've only picked this out because I think it especially uh, sums up some of my thoughts, but you can do your own and page through Proverbs, um, one chapter after the next, one section of verses after the next, it ascribes to this godly wisdom and describes it. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, my son, if you accept my words and storm up my commandments within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call for it, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. <clears throat> It is the ability to live and to seek after God that gives us the wisdom that we need. <clears throat> In James chapter 3, verse 17, James also gives the credit to wisdom coming from God when he talks about wisdom being from above. That means that if you truly want wisdom, if you want to be truly wise... You acquire that not by becoming smart in 
and things about earth, but you acquire true wisdom by seeking God and the truth of his word, just like Proverbs says here. And you can go through the Bible and you can see the stories of the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, and you will find example after example of people who followed earthly wisdom instead of godly wisdom, and you can see the impact that it had on their lives. Just one little example would be in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan to eat of the tree that God had commanded them not to eat. And the primary temptation to Eve was that the fruit, eating the fruit, would make her wise. And that posed an incredible temptation for them. And it does for all of us. The devil also used some of this same strategy when he tempted Jesus. And he uses that same strategy for us today. Doing this will make you wise. And for Adam and Eve, as we know, they embraced that line of thinking. And they saw it that way. They, they believed that eating of the fruit would lead them to wisdom. First of all, <clears throat> let's talk about the worldly wisdom. Marks of worldly wisdom... And I'm using, I'm just sticking with the text here. <coughs> Worldly wisdom that produces conflict in our lives and in our relationships. Worldly wisdom is rooted in jealousy and selfishness. Notice what he says in verse 14. If you have bitter envying and strife. Now... They both deal with hidden, both of these deal with hidden motives in our hearts. The wisdom of the world is to push myself up while simultaneously pushing my competitor down or somebody else down. Lifting up myself and simultaneously pushing someone else down. That's envy and strife. The wisdom of the world. Now secular writers and authors yeah, it's amazing to me. I just do a quick scan of, of let's say, you know, top sellers in, in, uh, on the New York Times list or, or, the, or something such, some such list. You will find books that will actually teach you how to do this. Books and, and also uh, there are such people as uh, coaches or business consultants that will tell you how to do this. How to outsell everyone else. How to make yourself number one. How to intimidate your opponent. How to uh, pull people into your uh, scheme or whatever it is that you're, you're pushing. Godly wisdom, as we've seen, on the other hand, listens to the one who's raising an objection. Considers whether or not they might have a valid point. Strife. In my opinion, as I study the Greek word strife, it's just another word for the word manipulation. And why do we manipulate? Why are we tempted to manipulate? Well, we manipulate to get our agenda across. We try to befriend certain people so that we can manipulate others through them. Worldly wisdom doesn't seek God's glory. 
It is rooted in selfishness and pride, envy and strife. I think it's interesting that James refers to that two times here in our, he links those two, those two twice. Envy and strife, they go together. Secondly, worldly wisdom is arrogant. Mention is made there about how James says that we should glory not. And the Greek words imply arrogance, pride, boasting, self-absorbance, where we're full of ourselves. Again, it is easy for us to fall into that line of thinking that I'm right about this and those who disagree with me are either uh, ignorant somehow, they don't see it, perhaps even sinning. And we all need to be in guard against the pride that can so easily creep in. If we start parading our knowledge or using it to put others in their place, we are not displaying godly wisdom. Glory not. And then he follows that by saying that worldly wisdom lies against the truth. Worldly wisdom sets ourselves up for deceit, where we have an incorrect or distorted view about what is actually true, embracing what is not reality, believing what is not actually factual. Worldly wisdom lies against the truth. He goes on then and he talks about uh, verse 15. Let me just read that to you. And it, uh, I'm, yeah, James just doesn't hold anything back, does he? He says, This wisdom, or this earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom, descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. Worldly wisdom is earthly, sensual, and demonic. James doesn't mince words. The source of this, of this worldly wisdom is not God, but rather it is at its best comes from the natural man. But ultimately, this worldly wisdom comes from Satan himself. I think these terms sort of move in um, least or at least to worst, if you want to say it that way. Earthly suggests a perspective that fails to consider God's realm and will. will. It's, it doesn't uh, focus on things that are eternal, but rather focuses on things that are limited and bound to time. The Greek word for sensual is maybe not quite uh, the, like we think of it, where we think of it as something immoral or explicit in that way or suggestive in that way. The Greek word for sensual is translated natural in other places in the scriptures, such as 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 44 and 46, and also in Jude 19, it, we use that, it's, it's translated natural in at least some translations. It has to do with that part of man where human feelings and human reasons take place. It's the soulish part of man. It's in keeping with our five senses. Things that are, have to do with what we can see and feel and smell and touch, having to do with our five senses. And I found it very interesting, for whatever it's worth, that this same Greek word is the same root word that our words psychology and psychiatrist, psychiatry, 
come from. The same Greek word that's translated sensual here it has to do with our five senses and things that we feel and can see or, or um, actually experience in our, in our um, uh, human bodies. Devilish or demonic points, of course, to the ultimate source of all that's opposed to God. That's Satan. And I told you earlier that Satan used this strategy to tempt Adam and Eve. He appealed to Adam and Eve's five senses. He had them thinking in terms of things that were short-term or temporal or things that were earthly in nature as compared to thinking in um, lines of what is eternal or lasting in nature. And that's the strategy that he used to tempt Jesus Christ and the strategy that he uses to tempt us. <clears throat> the fifth thing here, and I see I missed it on my... Uh, no, actually I have it here. Worldly wisdom results in confusion and every evil thing. When Paul was exhorting the Corinthians about the problems in their assembly in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. I find that very instructing, especially when I think of the subject or the material here in James. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And that same confusion or that same disorder breaks out or will break out in our relationships in our homes, or in our churches, or in our uh, whatever ministry that we're involved in, Christian ministry of any kind, where we lean on things other than God, you will have confusion and every evil thing. It, disorder breaks out where people are pursuing their own selfish interests and their own one-sided causes, rather than seeing it from the good of the group as a whole. The word evil here is not only limited to things that are bad or sinful, but it also carries the idea of being worthless or meaningless. Where the picture here is that when there is worldly wisdom at work, that it produces nothing worthwhile. There's not much good, there's a lot of good for nothing going on. When earthly wisdom is in the picture, Nothing meaningful is taking place. Now this pseudo-wisdom that I'm talking about leads to futility and leads to frustration. It is in strike and stark contrast to the wisdom that is from above. Godly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom. And I'm happy to shift to that uh, right now. <clears throat> In verse 17, he turns to talk about what marks of godly wisdom are. First of all, he says godly wisdom is pure. And I think it's interesting that he underscores the importance of this by saying that wisdom is first pure. It's primary. Purity the word that's used here has the idea of being unmixed or untainted or unmasked, unpainted. It's original. Wisdom from above is first pure. It is not 
tainted. It is unmixed, unadulterated by any kind of iniquity or impurity. It might point to moral purity, but in the context here, I think it has a broader sense. Especially it has the sense of being free from jealousy or being free from ulterior motives, selfish ambitions. Again, it's the focus on our motives, especially in relation to our relationships, as I see it. If we seek wisdom so that we can lord it over people or use it for our own advantage or power, it is not pure godly wisdom. Our motive for seeking wisdom and for using wisdom is not to seek our, to build ourselves up, but to build others up, to build up the person to whom we are relating or speaking to. And we especially need to keep this in mind when we get into disagreements or um, there's more than one way of doing things and those sorts of things. It's easy to want to win the argument, but we need to keep in mind that we can bring harm to the person that we're talking to. Before you jump into some kind of dispute, perhaps we can ask ourselves some questions such as, how important is this issue in the light of God's glory? And how important is the other person's spiritual well-being in the light of what I'm talking about? Also, keep in mind how difficult it is for us to, for us to change our mind. It takes, it takes a while, doesn't it? Especially those of us who are strong German, Germanic background or uh, blame it on that. I don't know what it is. Human nature. We, we, it's hard for us to change our mind. And if you think about how hard it is for you to change your mind, think about how hard it might be for the other person to also change theirs. It takes time. So be gracious. Grant that same liberty to the other person. Secondly, godly wisdom is peaceable. Purity is first. But then wisdom is peaceable. If you compromise purity for the sake of peace, I, I tend to think that you're not acting in godly wisdom. If peace is your primary thing, you can open yourself to a lot of impurity. On the other hand, if you hold the purity in a contentious or a, a cantankerous manner, you can also ruin peace. You can destroy peace in a situation, whether it's in your home or in your relationships, whatever it is. Seeking peace in relationships is actually a pretty major theme of the Bible, especially the New Testament. Check out some of the uh, instructions, and I showed you earlier uh, in 2 Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy, also in 1 Corinthians. Many of the books of the Bibles I, uh, of the New Testament were written to bring peace to the church or the, the group of people that were reading it. For instance, look at the council. In 1 Peter, given to wives and husbands, the Apostle Peter says that we should turn away from evil and do good. We need to seek peace and pursue it, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. And those words apply not just to marriages, but to all relationships. Pursue peace. Chase after it. Make it, your, make it like an animal in the hunt. Paul echoes this same theme often in, first, in Ephesians chapter 4. He says that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, very descriptive words there. Seek peace and pursue it with diligence. 
Purity always brings peace. Or saying it conversely, the absence of purity brings the absence of peace. Third thing here in our description of godly wisdom is gentleness. And I've already touched on some of this. William Barclay in his writing says that of all Greek words in the New Testament, the word gentleness here as it's used in the the Greek or in different parts of the places of the New Testament might be one of the most untranslatable words, at least to English. He goes on to say that a man or a person with this quality knows how to forgive even when he has a perfect right to condemn. He knows how to make allowances, when not to stand upon his rights, and how to balance justice with mercy. The word gentleness, William Barclay says, indicates a willingness to yield and a corresponding unwillingness to make harsh claims. And I think the word gentleness is sort of the equal and opposite of the word strife that we talked about earlier. Godly wisdom is gentle. And then he says godly wisdom is reasonable. That's the word that comes to my mind. It is easy to be entreated, the King James Version says. Easy to be entreated, reasonable. It means easily persuaded, willing to take instructions. It does not mean gullible. It does not mean that it you can, um, that somebody is credulous or can, is easily jerked around, has no boundaries. It doesn't mean that at all. But rather, it means that a person who is easy to be entreated is not only quick to hear, like James says in, in 119, but he's willing to yield for the sake of peace. Some issues, I tell you, are not worth giving blood over. Some issues are not worth giving blood over, but others are. And a godly person who has godly wisdom is going to know which, which battles to fight and which battles not to engage in. A wise man is willing to listen to others' views and change as he's proven wrong. <clears throat> The fifth thing here, godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. Full of mercy and good fruits. Many of these qualities echo the Beatitudes. You may have thought about that. Gentleness, purity, peace. All of these have to do with or are in line with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And that's also true of mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Matthew 5, 7. Jesus underscores the importance of mercy throughout his ministry. In Luke chapter 6, verse 36, he says, Be merciful as your Father which is in heaven is merciful. Being merciful means not only having compassion for the person who is suffering apart from anything that he did, but also showing compassion to the person who is suffering because of what they did. God is merciful to us in that way. He is merciful to us in spite of the fact that our problems usually or always stem from our sin, bad decisions that we made. Reminds me of Romans chapter 5 verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
We are to extend the mercy of God to others, undeserving sinners. And I think it's especially neat to see how that James adds good, good fruits. He does not only say that we're full of mercy, but he continues by saying we're full of mercy and good fruits. You know, it's one thing to kind of stop the fight, to kind of end, end the argument. But this talks about doing good and continuation from that point. Full of mercy and good fruits. Our faith must show itself by practical good deeds. Otherwise, it is not faith. And perhaps in that same way, mercy needs to continue by showing good fruits. Otherwise, it is not mercy. I could be corrected on that, but that's something that I thought of. Look at James chapter 2, verse 16. Actually, I referred to that. Faith without works is dead. And in that same way, godly wisdom is not some theoretically some theoretical position, but it's practical. Practical. It's rolled up sleeves and taking action. Good fruits. Godly wisdom is impartial. It is without partiality. And that word is used, the only place that it's used here in, in the New Testament, in the Greek, is right here. It, it might mean impartial, which is part of the definition, in the sense of not taking sides or not being favoritism or expressing favoritism to some. But it, it gives more of a word picture, at least in my opinion, where like politicians, a politician might speak evil of his opponent today, but just yesterday a politician spoke good of the same person. And the reason for that is because yesterday, or let me say it this way, today there is no personal gain in speaking good about his opponent, but yesterday there was. That's the, that's the word picture. That's the connotation of this word, without partiality. And it goes along with the, the prior lesson here in James, where we have forked tongues. We speak, out of the same mouth comes bitter water and cursing. Out of the same mouth comes, um, uh, what, are, what are the words that are actually used here? Blessing and cursing. Out of the same fountain Bitter water and fresh water. It doesn't work that way, right? <clears throat> Godly wisdom is without hypocrisy. Godly wisdom is without hypocrisy. It is sincere. What you see in godly wisdom is not a mask. It is not a cover-up. And this word, I think, in the Greek, was originally used to describe actors, actual people who played a part on stage that was not like, that was not at all like how they were in everyday life. If we would seek to live by these seven qualities of godly wisdom, personal conflicts would be greatly minimized, I'm convinced. If we would make these characteristics a greater focus and a greater emphasis of our lives, personal conflicts, and would, would be minimized. Harmonious relationships, on the other hand, would blossom and grow. It provides, it, 
listen, these qualities, these marks provide a place for relationships to grow. When we exercise these in our personal lives, we start to stack good decisions on top of good decisions. It becomes a pattern and a way for us, a way of life for us. And we can become habitual, if it were, as it were. It comes by being filled with godly wisdom, where we, have a, where we string good decisions together. And it becomes a, a place, a, a way for us to live and think. But unfortunately, we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, just like people throughout time have. And these forces combine to lead us astray and sometimes lead us into down wrong paths. And sometimes that causes disharmony in our relationships. <clears throat> I want to just close this sermon now by looking at James chapter 3, verse 18. And I was especially struck by this verse. Peaceful relationships must be cultivated with deliberate effort and attention. Look at verse 18. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them or by them that make peace. Again, a lot of picturesque language, a lot of picturesque words here. Vivid imagery that at least comes to my mind. When you look at some of the uh, other translations, the English Standard Version says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The point is kind of simple. You reap what you sow. For myself, as a farmer, if I sow corn, I reap corn. I don't plant beans and expect to reap corn. It doesn't work that way. And if you as a person sow selfishness and strife, you're going to reap selfishness and strife. If you sow peace, you're going to reap the same. The other thing that's implied in this verse is the fact that a harvest is not something accidental. Harvest doesn't just happen. You don't walk out to your garden some August day and you say, Whoa! I've got a bountiful harvest here. That's not how it works. A farmer doesn't do that. But there is intentional, planned, scheduled effort that's taken. And you don't reap in the same season as you sow, generally. It comes later. And that's how it is for our lives. If there's a harvest of peace, it's in part, at least in part, because the person has worked to cultivate that harvest. That's how it is in the natural sense, and that's how it is in relational sense as well. If you see a church, you see a home where there's peace, it's because the members of that home or church have worked to cultivate peace. 
if you have listened to one another, if you have respected one another, if you have judged your own selfishness, if you have judged your own pride, if you have sought to live in a way that is in agreement with godly wisdom instead of worldly wisdom, that's the context that peace is brought. James wants us to apply godly wisdom to our personal lives and to our relationships. And God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful to do that if we are willing to seek him for that. James chapter 1 verse 5. I read it again. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. I close with some questions for our consideration. Which of the seven godly qualities of wisdom do you most need to work on in 2019? How will you go about doing it? Which of the traits of worldly wisdom are you most prone to? How will you guard against it? How, practically speaking now, how will you pursue peace this week? Is there peace in your home? Are you at peace with those in this church or the church that you attend? If not, Check out what seed you're sowing. If you're sowing worldly wisdom, you're going to reap disorder and every evil thing, according to James. If you sow God's wisdom, you'll reap peace. Remember, wisdom is revealed in what we show, not just in what we know. What does your life reveal? What does your life show? My prayer is for myself and all of us that I would have this wisdom that James holds out here in his book. If you're able to kneel with me, I invite you to do so for prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. We ask for your guidance and your grace on our lives. And particularly as we stand at the beginning of this new year, I pray that you would give us wisdom, give us direction, understanding on situations, and help us to pursue this peace, to pursue this wisdom, to make this purity of godly wisdom a dominant force in our lives. Deliver us from things that would fight against this. And I pray, Lord, that you would be faithful in reminding us of areas in our lives where we can become more like you and better demonstrate your peace and your work in the lives of to those around us, our friends, our neighbors, our church people, our family members. I pray, Lord, that you would just grant us your, your guidance as we go throughout our lives. Thank you again for your word and how it speaks to us. And we pray for strength and grace to do what is ours to do. We pray through Christ. Amen.